Welcome to Slow Stories. I'm Rachel Schwartzman, the founder of Connected Editorial and the host and creator of this podcast. For those of you just joining in, Slow Stories is a series that deep dives into the rising slow content movement. In each of these episodes, I interview brand builders, entrepreneurs, and creative professionals who share what slow content means in the context of what they're building and why slowing down and creating thoughtful stories is more important than ever. This episode begins with a reading from Samara Cooper, who shares a quote from a book that inspired her to slow down and live with more intention. Here's Samara. Hey guys, my name is Samara Cooper. I'm a publicist and a podcaster, and I'm going to be sharing a quote from a book that really made me slow down this summer. It helped me take inventory of my entire life and evaluate my intentions on a daily, monthly, holistic basis. And I refer to it really often when I'm feeling overwhelmed or stressed or indecisive, or I just need to find stillness to really kind of slow down and get through. The book is A Return to Love by Marianne Williamson, originally released in 1992, which is an interpretation of the book A Course in Miracles, released in 1976. Basically, both are a guide to finding more peace and oneness in life. The quote really kind of allows me to put things in perspective quickly and serves as a model of what I aspire to be and how I aspire to live my life without fear and with more love. And the quote is, we must learn to only think divine thoughts. Angels are the thoughts of God and in heaven, humans think like angels. Angels light the way. Angels do not begrudge anyone, anything. Angels do not tear down. Angels do not compete. Angels do not constrict their hearts. Angels do not fear. That's why they sing and that's how they fly. We, of course, are only angels in disguise. Thank you so much again to Samara for sharing. Again, the book she referenced was A Return to Love by Marianne Williamson. Now here's my conversation with Deja Fox. Certain moments in life leave an indelible mark on our stories. While it can sometimes be uncomfortable to navigate these moments of uncertainty, individuals like Deja Fox remind us that moving with intention will always be a step in the right direction. At just 20 years old, Deja has already risen to prominence as a community builder who is seamlessly bridging the gap between social justice and social media to connect and mobilize young people around the world. While you may be familiar with Deja's work as the influencer and surrogate strategist for Kamala Harris's presidential campaign, Deja's impact began closer to home when at just 16, a question she posed to her senator at a town hall meeting ultimately catapulted her into the spotlight as a leader to watch in the reproductive justice movement. These days, and even as the world continues to reckon with a global health crisis, Deja has continued to scale her advocacy work, most notably with her digital community, Gen Z Girl Gang. But platforms aside, asking questions has remained integral to Deja's work, especially when it comes to examining the systems and policies necessary to ensure a more equitable future. For Deja, these life-changing experiences have reinforced the critical role that storytelling can play in creating lasting change. And in this interview, Deja reflected on her own story, the role of pace and activism, and what she's learned about meeting the moment. This interview was full of so many incredible moments, but I won't give too much more away. And with that said, enjoy my conversation with the inspiring Deja Fox. 
at my core, there's nothing I'd rather be in this life than a good role model. And I think that looks like a lot of different things. In my personal life, it's being a sister, being a friend, right? Being a mentor and a mentee, being a daughter, being a partner. You know, there's also so many other aspects. I love to run. I love to read. My favorite show is Antiques Roadshow. Uh, and I've been going antiquing a lot. And this new year, as I really think about what hobbies I want to sustain for myself. And yeah, I guess that's that's sort of me. I'm a whole person outside of the work that I do. And I, I think part of my work actually is showing up as a whole person, as someone who works on campaigns, but also posts up in their bikini and someone who builds digital strategies, but also uh, does paid posts with vibrators. And, you know, I try to I try to be as whole and authentic as I can be in any space I show up in. And I think that's part of the work. Well, it comes across from what I've seen. And, you know, obviously, we're having this conversation at a very critical time in our collective history. And it seems like no matter what you're doing, there's always such a level of intention and urgency, but not so much in a way where you have to necessarily run in a million different directions to get a point across. And, you know, before we kind of get into talking about what you do in your story, I would also love to have you share a story, whether it's an article, a poem, or a book that made you slow down recently or sort of re-inspired how you think about community building, especially during this time. Yeah, I would say one poem, not recent, but um, something that sort of guides my life is the poem Desiderata. And it definitely has some reminders in there that there are no greater or lesser people, but also that the universe is always unfolding as it should, even if it's not clear to us in the moment. And I think both of those things, you know, how we perceive others, but also the faith that we hold in the way that the world is unfolding, for me, are central to my ability uh, to hold space and build communities, right? But then I would also add Uh, A little bit more recently, I just finished this book called The Rocket Years, and it's all about your 20s. And it's sort of this like combination of data and personal story from the author. And for me, you know, building a community, Gen Z girl gang of young women and femmes who are all sort of in these rocket years, right, whose lives are changing so quickly and heading so many different directions. And it feels like every decision we make now is compounding to like build the life we'll have in 20, 30 years, right? And I think that that really gave me a chance, especially in this new year, to slow down and think about what do I really value, right? What outside of my professional career am I cultivating that is going to sustain me throughout the rest of my life, whether it be relationships, friendships, faith, hobbies, right? I think it really gave me this sort of sense that we are so much more than our jobs and a reminder that it takes work and energy and time to cultivate those those other habits and relationships. Absolutely. I think I should add that to my reading list. I'm 28, but there is such a transformation that happens in the 20s. I've been referring mm-hmm. to it lately as the puberty of adulthood, where you're just figuring out what you are and what you're not, and really kind of entering that fully-fledged identity as an adult. And you're 20, right? Yeah, that's right. I'm 20. I was, uh, that's funny that you said sort of like teenage years. I think for me, it's sort of like um, a mid-youth crisis. I feel like 20 was this really big, like going from teenager to 20 something. Um, it's a different kind of being young, a different kind of adulthood even. So yeah, I'm 20 and it is definitely a transitional time. You know, before we hopped on this call, I was thinking about 
what I was doing when I was 20. I also mm-hmm. was kind of entering, I guess, this realm of entrepreneurship and really trying to hone in on the impact that I wanted to leave. It's amazing to me how much of a difference the experience of 20 is that I had versus what you're having. I mean, the world has just mm-hmm. completely been turned on its head. And, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about it more in this conversation. But what really drew me to your work is this commitment to not only empowering youth, but really making sure that you are investing in the next generation, even as somebody who's young. And, you know, I think the narrative around the experience of youth is something that is being reclaimed in a lot of ways, because, you know, if you zoom out and look at kind of the collective overview of how young people are perceived, it's either they're not doing enough or at the other end of the spectrum, it's like people are saying, well, who do they think they are? So, you know, there's a duality there that I think is allowing voices like yours to kind of rise to the forefront. And I'm curious, as you kind of move into the next phase of your life, is there something that you'd like to see change in terms of the narrative around the youth experience? And, you know, how can young people sort of reclaim that narrative in a very noisy and currently very volatile landscape? I think in some part, it's not really on young people anymore. Honestly, I think young people have been doing the work for forever. Young people have always been at the forefront of our social movements. And I think, you know, young people, whether we even just look back right at this most recent election, young people turned out, they did. Young people were the organizers that picked up their lives and moved across the country. Young people built the narrative online, right? When we experienced and came into this pandemic, they were the ones that had the communities and the strategies built to mobilize and and create a digital narrative. So I'm not really sure that it's on young people anymore. I really believe that it's it's on the people who are older and that hold positions of power to to start to create space for young people to be real leaders. You know, I sort of feel a little bit disheartened when I see organizations using young people for example as implementers, right? or as spokespeople, but refusing to let them uh, have a hand in creating the policies or the practices that they're being asked to put into play. And so I really think that changing the narrative about young people is no longer on young people. Young people have shown up. Young people have done the work. Young people have proven time and time again that we are willing to to create the future that we're going to inherit. But now it's, it's really on older generations who hold power and influence to create spaces for real leadership, for young people to create and be in the rooms where messaging is being built and priorities are being decided and strategies are being made. I really, I think that's the larger or or rather the next step. I think with the advent of technology in the digital age, the ability to create those tools and that accessibility, I mean, you can't turn away from it. It's everywhere. Yeah. And so I think, you know, you've done that so inherently with all of your work, even as a young person yourself. And I'd love to have you, just for those who are listening that might not have the full scope of your story, share a little bit more about your experiences and also about how your relationship with pace has changed and how you kind of view when to go fast and when to go slow and how those kind of decisions have impacted your work and your creativity too. Yeah. So a little bit about me. I was born and raised in Tucson, Arizona. I was raised by a single mom and in a household like many across this country where people struggled to make the basics happen. We were on Section 8 
right? Living in Section 8 housing, on food stamps. Uh, And by the time I was 15, my mom had struggled with substance abuse, and I actually ended up leaving my house and experiencing what one in 30 teens in the U.S. experience, which is hidden homelessness, which means either bouncing around from friends' houses, maybe staying with extended family, but really just not having a home of your own. And so it was through the lens of this housing insecurity that I really blossomed into my activism work and took this experience of not having a parent at home and saw how the sex ed in my school district was built to disadvantage people like me, got active, started bringing my friends and won, and then scaled my work from there. And, you know, when I think about pace, I almost have to think about how so much of my pace in life hasn't really been decided by me, right? That it was maybe the slow, slow roll of school board meetings, right? That would drag on for hours and hours where we would go for months and months and months and wouldn't even get a press interview. But then all of a sudden, you know, one meeting and everything would change. Similarly, you know, with when I turned 16 and I had scaled up that work and I was advocating for birth control access, asked my senator at the time why he would deny someone like me the American dream and access to the healthcare I needed to take control of my body and my future and go on to be the first in my family to go to college, that uh, interaction uh, was posted and then went viral. And so then my life, you know, started to move much, much quicker. The next day I was on CNN and I was only 16 at the time. And then I was in Washington, D.C. lobbying on behalf of Planned Parenthood. And so I say all of that to say that I think for me, especially in my work, it feels that pace often is a little bit outside of my control and that I have to sort of rise to meet the moment. But I will say that it is much easier to meet the moment and speed up or slow down when you have the training to do so, just like any good runner would know, right? That you still have to train uh, regardless of if you know when your race is going to be. And so I kind of think about how, you know, an organizer at Planned Parenthood took me to do trainings before she ever knew that I might go viral or have to speak on Capitol Hill or, you know, be on CNN, she took me to these trainings to make sure that I felt confident and I knew how to tell my story in a way that was effective and authentic. And so I think really investing in your skills, whether you know if you're going to have to do that fast run or not, is really important. And then something else that sort of, for me, brings up pace is this idea. One of my friends, Bria Baker, said this on a panel we were on together. This work is neither a marathon nor a sprint. It's a relay race. And You know, when I started Gen Z Girl Gang my freshman year of college, that was really the ethos of it was that I couldn't do this work on my own. And I knew that, that this was a team effort that, you know, none of us should be responsible for the weight of the world on our own and that it takes power in our personal networks, knowing that we can trust our friends and our peers and our co-conspirators to pick up that baton when we need to rest. And so I think To be able to slow down for me necessitates that trust, right? Like I have to be able to trust the people around me to pick up where I left off and building power in the women that surround me and building relationships in that way, building my girl gang has really given me the space to take those breaks when I need them. And I hope to help others create those kinds of communities as well. It's fantastic. And I love the point about trust. I mean, I think that's something that's become so broken, especially in the last year. And now with initiatives like Gen Z Girl Gang and just the rise of voices like yours, I think more than making a statement, what I've found to be the most powerful tool to initiate that trust is asking questions. And that's not always an easy thing to do because 
you know, there's not always an answer on the other side of that, that you're ready for, or that you can respond to in kind. But, you know, that question that you asked at the town hall meeting, it catapulted you into the life that you're living now. And, you know, I think in the context of activism or change making, do you have thoughts on what you believe is more important now, asking a question or making a statement? Hmm. This is an interesting question. And the first thing it brings up for me, you know, absolutely. I think we need to be asking questions always, especially in a time like this, you know, with coronavirus and the honestly botched response from this administration or seeing someone who could stoke so much hate in office, like 45, right? For me as a young person watching all of this, I have to question and we should all be questioning is this right? Is what we're doing working? You know, I think the day that we stop asking questions and stop wondering if we're doing things the best way is the day that democracy will fail because it is an active, it is an active sport. <laughs> it's something you have to be engaged in and you have to be questioning, especially as the electorate changes, right? To look more like me and less like Trump. Is this system working? Are these systems working for us? What needs to change? What needs to go away altogether? Is there a question that you have been thinking about quietly? Because I think too, with that, and I absolutely agree with you, timing is really important in terms of when to ask and when to listen. But as somebody with a platform, I'm curious, you know, have you been thinking about things that maybe we don't see on your Instagram feed that you might also want to speak to in this context? I think one question I have been asking, I've been asking this one, maybe a little bit more loudly is how can we all use our personal networks, right? That we've developed online. So those digital communities, the people who follow us, whether it's one person or 1 million people, how can we mobilize those relationships in the service of change? But on the flip side of that, and this is the question I've maybe been asking more quietly, how are some people or some organizations mobilizing those in the service of hate? I think you know, even with what we we most recently saw on Capitol Hill, there absolutely needs to be a discussion around the ways that misinformation, disinformation, hate, conspiracies are being spread through these, these internet channels. And honestly, when we think about these channels, right, it is through person-to-person relationships. And so that's kind of the question, what is the impact that will have on the rest of our lives? What do we expect from tech companies to, to make a difference, right? It's literally a matter of life and death. And how do we hold them accountable? How do we create those changes on a personal and a, and a larger level? So that's a question I've been grappling with as a young person who was born and raised with social media in my hand is, you know, what is our responsibility in this? And what kind of changes do we need to be demanding to create a future that is more equitable and safer for all of us? And how does that play into the digital space? I also had one other thing about the asking a question or making a statement that sort of just came to my mind on the other end, the making a statement side. I think something Kamala Harris, when I worked on her campaign, would always say is that you don't let people tell you who you are you tell them who you are. And I think, you know, as a collective, we need to be questioning these systems and what's working and what's not working and what could be better. But as individuals, especially, you know, Black and Indigenous people of color, women, marginalized communities, queer folks, right? We should be making statements about who we are, showing up boldly 
And I think that that is powerful in and of itself too making a statement about who we are, not letting people tell us about us, but us telling them who we are is powerful and is the work. Absolutely. And I think to that point, you know, what I've learned in terms of building slow stories, it's really been in reaction to everything that I'm personally unlearning, especially with how Mm I move through the digital world. You know, as I alluded to earlier in this conversation, when I was 20, I started building the foundation of my life and work in this space, It was focused on how creativity was a catalyst for change, but I began to think about what could that look like beyond the vanity and the visual and how could that be something that's tangible. And so when I started Slow Stories, it was a mirror into a lot of the brands and the people that I had featured or worked with in the past who were invested in movements like slow fashion and slow food. And I began to think about how those ideals and those practices could translate into how we tell stories especially online, because it is such a powerful vehicle for connection and to your point to make statements about who we are and what we stand for. And, you know, your work in this space is living proof of that impact. But something that I always like to ask each of my guests is what this idea of slow content or storytelling means to them. So for you, what comes to mind and how would you sort of frame this in the context of your work with Gen Z Girl Gang and, you know, even in past endeavors? Yeah, the first thing that sort of comes to mind for me is that my story is ever evolving. And so in that sense, it is a slow story, right? It's still changing every day. And something that maybe wasn't as significant two or three years ago, right, may be more significant in two or three years from now, because I now see how that experience is tied to the life I'm building for myself, right? A reminder that I'm only 20, and that my life is still changing in ways that I yet cannot even imagine. And so in that sense, my own story is a slow story because it is always growing and changing. And no matter how many times I tell it, it's different every day. But also I think, you know, hearing you talk about slow fashion and slow food, I also kind of think about how change can be slow and it can be fast at the same time. And thinking about past endeavors, I think about the El Rio Reproductive Health Access Project, which is something I co-founded in my senior year of high school, where we trained young people who were untraditional leaders, right? They were young people like me who had experienced homelessness, teen moms, folks who were formerly incarcerated or had struggled with substance abuse to become peer sex educators. And they got paid to work in clinics that then provided access to birth control and STI testing at absolutely no cost to the young people that came in. And I say that because that is both quick change, right? That puts money in the hands of young people and leadership experience onto their resumes. And that is a big and fast change for their lives at the same time, right? A big and quick change for someone who now has access to the implant and doesn't have to worry about unplanned pregnancy for the next three to five years. But it's also slow change. Because on scale, right, knowing that we've provided those services for thousands of young people in my hometown, that's the kind of thing that changes a community for generations. And in that sense, you know, I I think change can be both fast to meet the needs of the people who are really the most affected, right? The people who need that money, who need those leadership opportunities, who need access to healthcare but also slow in the sense that it can change a community through generations and over time. And I aspire for my work to always be that way, to be fast enough to meet the needs of the people who are most affected, but also slow enough to really create lasting change. 
It kind of speaks to, I think, what you've alluded to in past interviews where you can struggle and succeed at the same time. There's always going to be that element of tension, but I think that's what keeps us grounded. It's so easy to get distracted now. And, you know, I think to that point too, something that's been coming up in a lot of these conversations is how we maintain our sense of humanity during this time. And as you think about, I guess, the next chapter of your story, what is your take on storytelling as a way to kind of maintain and celebrate humanity, both online and offline? And is there something that you can say to those listening who might be struggling to do that in a way where it's authentic, but also doesn't cross boundaries. Because I think that's another element of living and working in this very interconnected age. The world expects so much of us in terms of sharing. (laughs) So I'm curious what your thoughts are there. Yeah, this is hard. This is a hard line to walk. And I'll share that the first time I, I got up and told my story, I was not nearly this confident or assured or this succinct. It was all scribbled down on a post-it note, like little card. And I stood in front of these five school board members and there's only maybe like 10 people in the office because, or in the, (laughs) in the school board meeting, because quite honestly, who comes to school board meetings except for reporters. But I got up, wasn't that many people in the room with my notes all written out and I was shaking and my voice was shaking. And I don't even really remember what I said, but I remember when I sat down, I was crying. I was, I mean, I was my emotional response was so heavy to having told my story. I felt vulnerable. I felt a little bit insecure, but I also felt, you know, empowered that this was the first time I'd done it. And now I could ask my friends to come along and do the same and help them and empower them to use their voice. And, you know, less than a year later, I was in front of a thousand people at a town hall telling that story in the service of change. And then 18 million people saw the video overnight. And then I was on CNN live telling, telling my story. And so I would say that when you're thinking about how to really cherish your own humanity and your boundaries, when telling your story, no matter the platform, the key is to be uncomfortable, but not unsafe. It is not comfortable to tell your story for the first time. And it's not comfortable honestly, to push yourself into these new spaces. But there is a line between what is uncomfortable and what is unsafe. And I think finding that line, walking it, and pushing yourself to do things that maybe aren't within your comfort zone, but don't put you at at risk, is really when you find that sweet spot for growth. And I think often about how it would have been unsafe for me as that 15-year-old who had never told her story to go onto a live media outlet, right? or to, to be in front of a thousand people or uh, have a video go viral in that sense. But because I had done the work, the slow work of telling my story again and again at school board meetings, and then, you know, at other town halls and to my friends and with organizers and at events, I was ready when that moment came. I was ready to meet the moment and sort of, you know, like I said, meet that pace that was demanded of me because I had done the work before. So be uncomfortable, but don't be unsafe. And, and that's where you'll find your growth. I'm curious in terms of growth and in terms of also reinvesting in the next generation, is there a story of somebody that you're investing in that you can share who's inspired you to grow in maybe new or unexpected ways? Yeah. You know, I think my GGG team is full of young women who I see limitless potential in. 
And they are all, they all come to this work. Their GGG story is different than mine and it's theirs to tell. But I will say that we end every single meeting with appreciations. And so we go around and I appreciate so-and-so and then they appreciate someone else. And it goes in a full circle until everyone has received an appreciation. And one of our newest members appreciated me just the other day for affirming them and for helping them think bigger and seeing new possibilities and touching their life in a way that I may not even know about, right? And for lending my leadership and my vision to them. And I think in that sense, what keeps me going is knowing that when I believe that anything is possible for myself, I can also believe that anything is possible for my loved ones and my friends and my peers. And so when they come to me uncertain about, you know, a goal or a dream, I can affirm them wholeheartedly because I don't, I don't see limitations for me or for them. And I think that that affirmation does so, so, so much. And I think each and every one of us can do it, whether we have, you know, a platform on social media where we're telling people, you know, this is what I do and you can do it too. Or if it's sitting down with our friends and asking, what do you really want? And then listening and affirming. I think that all of that is really important work. And it makes all the difference. I'm sure each and every one of us can think of a time, and I know I can, where someone saw our potential before even we did, and then pushed us to see it too, or affirmed us or celebrated us or told us we could when that's what we needed to hear and gave us the power to make it happen on our own. My father was, or or he is, one of those people who saw the potential in me before I could even put words to it. And one of his mm. mainstay mantras is the world is full of yes. So I carry that with me, <laughs> even when it feels like it's the complete opposite. But I think it's wonderful what you've built and all of the work that you're doing is really creating a runway for us to impact and inspire. What I've learned from this time and from the work I'm doing, at least with slow stories, is that we do need to focus on things that are adding substance and encouraging inquiry in our lives. And part of that is stepping away from devices and screens and really understanding, you know, how the stories we're telling in this context are adding to people's lives. All of that to say, you know, this last question, I think, is a nice way to kind of bring everything that we've talked about full circle. And that question is, why do you think slowing down our relationship to content will ultimately help us live, work, and feel better? Hmm. I think that content, when I think of content, I think of content production, right? It asks us to produce, it asks us to create. And I think when we slow that down and really start to do the work to disconnect our self-worth from, you know, any kind of output, any kind of production. That is when we can sort of liberate and free ourselves, right? When we know that I am so much more than anything I could ever produce, that I am inherently valuable. And when we know that, live that, believe that of ourselves, we can create systems that value that. We can create teams where that is true and remind others and affirm them that they are so much more than anything they could ever produce. And I think that when we start to disconnect those things, that is tied to social justice, but it's also tied to our own liberation and freedom and our ability to get others free. When we start to free ourselves from tying our worth 
to the production, whether it be of content or of, you know, whatever it is that you do at work, that you're just so much more than that. And when we all slow down and, and realize that I'm so much more than that, they are so much more than that, we are so much more than that, I think we'll have a better world. Deja Fox, activist, strategist, and founder of Gen Z Girl Gang. Learn more about Deja's work online at deja-fox.com and at mygenzgirlgang.com. You can also follow her on social at Deja Fox and at Gen Z Girl Gang. We'll be sharing highlights from this episode at Slow Stories Official on Instagram and at Slow Stories Pod on Twitter. I'm Rachel Schwartzman, and you've been listening to Slow Stories. Thank you so much for tuning in.